Amen. Oh, what a great set of music that just goes so, so, so well um, with what we're going to be talking about. So um, we, we started um, a new series a few weeks ago called Upper Room. And so what we're doing in this series is we're, we're looking at John 13 through 17, which scholars refer to as Jesus' Upper Room Discourse. It's when he gathers with his disciples the night before he goes to the cross in the upper room. And we find there just some of the deepest, richest teaching that we can get from our Lord. So excited about the series and walking through John 13 through 17 over the next few few months with you. So today, we're going to be in the back half of chapter 13. John 13, and we're going to begin with verse 18 and read through the end of the chapter. So if you can find that in your copy of God's Word, follow along as I read. John 13, and beginning with verse 18. And here, what Jesus is really doing is preparing us for the mission. He's, He's pouring himself into the disciples because he knows they're going to be sent out on mission like we are. Jesus is preparing us for that here. So John 13, beginning with verse 18, Jesus says, I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those I have chosen, but the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Truly I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was he was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus replied, he's the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. When he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Simon Iscariot's son. After Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you're doing, do quickly. None of those reclining at the table knew why he had said this to him. Since Judas kept the money bag, some thought that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival, or that he should give something to the poor. After receiving the piece of bread, he immediately left, and it was night. When he had left, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will look for me, just as I, and just as I told the Jews, now, so now I tell you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, 
Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this precious word from you. And we, we pray now that just as you were preparing your disciples that night for the mission, that you would prepare us as disciples for the mission. We pray that you would speak to us now through your word by the power of your spirit. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Think about the, the most memorable meals of your life that you've shared with a group of, of friends. Gosh, I think about some of the meals we've had together on mission trips. And, you know, you've been out working together all day and seeing uh, God work through you, and, and you're all tired, but, you know, it's like a really good kind of tired. And so you're all sitting around the table at night and, and talking about what God did during the day, and there's laughter. There may be tears, there's, there's, there's sharing, um, there's just that sense of, of love at the, at the, at the table. Um, and, you know, uh, one of the worst things I think about the last couple of years is the absence of a lot of that, because God did not make us for distancing from people, <laughs> He, he made us to come together with people face-to-face to, face, to, you know, to, to, to relate to one another face-to-face, heart-to-heart, to see facial expressions and your smile and all of that, and to come together at the table in, in love. And Jesus modeled that. When you read the Gospels, like how often in the Gospels is Jesus eating with people? It's all over the place, right? In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus is constantly having meals with people. And those meals were occasions for just loving on people. They were occasions for evangelism sometimes and discipleship and teaching and sometimes tears. And that night in the upper room is the most famous of all the meals that Jesus had. And, and, and one of the things he's doing that night is he's preparing his disciples to be sent out on mission. One, one prominent scholar of the Gospel of John, Frederick Dale Bruner, has called John 13 through 17 Jesus' discipleship course because he's preparing them for what is to come and preparing us to be sent out on mission. And he gives us here some principles that we need to know as we're sent out as disciples on mission. The first one is this. You will experience rejection. You will experience rejection. Verse 18, Jesus says, I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those who I have chosen, but the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. See, Jesus knows there's a snake that's coiled up in the room. And the snake's not over in the corner of the room somewhere. No, the, the snake is right there at the table. 
The quote that Jesus uses here in verse 18 is from Psalms. It's from Psalm 41 and verse 9, which, which says, Even my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus had spoken about the betrayal that was to come. Jesus knew, and Jesus knew who it was going to be. Turn back to chapter 6 in John. Turn, turn in your Bibles uh, back to chapter 6. And let's check out verses 70 and 71. John 6 70 and 71. Jesus replied to them, Didn't I choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He was referring to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, one of the twelve, because he was going to betray him. And then, uh, last time, when we were looking at the first half of chapter 13, what do we see there in verses 10 and 11? At the end of verse 10, what does Jesus say? He says, You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. So, so Jesus had known about this, and he wants, he wants the other 11 to know that he has known about this, so that when it happens, their faith is not going to be blown apart, but their faith will be built, because they'll know that Jesus has known this all along. So he says in, in verse 19 here, he says, I'm telling you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. In other words, Jesus wants them to understand this did not come to him as a surprise, which is really important for us. Because when tragedy or adversity strikes in our lives, it's usually a surprise. But what we most need to understand in that circumstance is that although we are surprised, that God is not surprised. And your loving Father knows. And it's not a surprise to Him. He, he knows and He loves you and He's in control. And Jesus knows and Jesus is in control here. Look at verse 20. He says, Truly I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. Now, at first, verse, um, verse 20 seems like it's kind of like a verse that's been dropped into the flow of the narrative. Um, it it, it kind of like just doesn't seem to fit with the flow of what's going on. But I'll tell you, the more I've studied this, this narrative, the more I really believe, this, this verse 20 absolutely goes with the flow of what he's talking about here because, because what is Jesus saying? What's happening here? Jesus is experiencing rejection by Judas. And he's, he's sending them out on mission and he knows that they're going to experience rejection. And so he's saying, as I'm sending you out, you need to understand that 
you're, you're being sent by me, and so therefore the rejection that you will encounter is ultimately not about you, it's really about me. Truly I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. And so when you experience rejection because of the gospel, don't, don't take that personally. You're only a vessel. You're just sent. It's not about you, right? It's, it's not about you. It's, it's, it's really about him and the one who sent him. There's something else here that we need to grab a hold of from verse 20, and that is that, that we are sent in the authority of Christ on mission. Whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. You are sent on mission with his authority. This is why in, in Matthew 28, right before Jesus gives the Great Commission, when he says, go and make disciples of all nations, what does he say in verse 18 right before that? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples, right? You're going out, you're sent in his authority. And so go with confidence. There will be some who re reject Jesus. There, there will be some who accept the message, but ultimately we're not in control of that, right? We should understand that we, we're going with confidence because of who is sending us. We're, we're going in his authority. Go, be sent on mission as a witness in this world, as a minister in this world, and the authority of the one who sent you. And so therefore, rejection's not personal, right? It's not about you, it's about him. The second principle that we see here is that you need close friends. You need close friends. Verse 21, when Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And the phrase here in the original when it says that Jesus was troubled in his spirit, it's a very powerful Greek word. And there is just pain and anguish in this word. Jesus was troubled anguished in his spirit. In fact, it was visible. That's why John is writing about it. Even as John writes this years later, he's remembering that moment and what he saw on the face of Jesus, and it was pain. It was anguish, because even though Jesus knew that it was going to happen, that didn't make it any less painful when it did happen. And again, there's a word here for us, because when our spirit is troubled, and when there's pain and anguish in our lives, you need to know Jesus has been there before you. That's why Hebrews 4.15 says that he's a high priest who can sympathize with our infirmities. You know, he can empathize with our, with our infirmities, our weaknesses, our pain. He's been there. Verses 22 and, and 23, the disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus. Now, in John, the one Jesus loved is 
is the Apostle John, the, the author here. And when John refers to himself as the one Jesus loved, he's not doing that like to puff himself up, like, I'm the one Jesus favored, you know, the one Jesus loved. We loved all of them. And he's not trying to say, well, Jesus loved me more. No, John calls himself the, the disciple Jesus loved because he's blown away that Jesus would love him. I am the one Jesus, Jesus, Jesus loves. And you know what? You're, if you're a disciple, you're a disciple Jesus loves. Jesus loves me. You should be blown away by that. That's, that's the kind of spirit that John has as he, as he refers to himself in that way, as, as the one Jesus loved. And it says here um, that they were, he was recline, reclining. Uh, verse 23, it says that, that, that John was reclining close beside Jesus. Now, a lot of times our, our, our picture, our mental picture of the scene of that night is formed by da Vinci's famous painting of the Last Supper. And, they're all, and it's a beautiful painting, but he has them all sitting around a long, re- in chairs around a long rectangular table. That's not what it would have been in the first century Middle East. No, they, they would have been reclining on cushions. And, uh, and, and so they're, they're, they would have been reclining on their left elbows so they could eat with their right hand. And so if John is to the right side of Jesus. Then John, John would have been reclining on his left elbow and his head would have been right back at the chest of Jesus. Right, right there at the heart of, of, of Jesus. He was, he was close beside him. Now, let me tell you something. This is really cool. I never saw this um, until I was studying for this, this message. But um, it says here in, in, verse, in verse 23 that, so John was reclining close beside Jesus. And that phrase, close beside, is the same phrase that is used about Jesus himself in his relationship to the Father in John 1.18. In John 1.18, it says, No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. And that phrase that Jesus is at the Father's side is the same phrase that's used of John here when it it says John was reclining close beside Jesus, right? At at the heart of Jesus. And Jesus is at the Father's heart. And so what does this mean for you and me? It means that if you are in Christ, you're united to Christ, it means that you're right there at the Father's heart. And you can lean back into the arms of a beautiful Father, as we sung earlier. Verse 24 and 25. Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was he was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? Now, like you really see in verses 24 and 25, the nature of the relationships in, among these guys, um, the closeness that's there. Peter and John are tight. 
they don't need to even say words to communicate. They're, they can just like look at each other and they can just speak to each other that way. Like it's a, it's a close, tight relationship. You have friends like that? I want to tell you, you need friends like that. You need brothers and sisters like that. And, and if you don't have them, I want to encourage you to do two things. First of all, pray for them. Pray, pray for God to give you close friends, close godly friends, so that you can have this kind of relationship and be there for one another. And then reach out and be a friend. You know, Proverbs says to have friends, you must be a friend, right? So be proactive, reach out to others, seek to be that kind of a friend. We, we need close friends, right? We're not meant to do this alone. A third principle that we see here is that you, you face satanic attack. You face satanic attack. So, verse 25 ends with John leaning back against Jesus and asking him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answers in verse 26, Jesus replied, He's the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. When he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. Now, in the Middle East, to to dip a piece of bread and to extend it like this. This is a gesture of great honor and love. And so Jesus is still reaching out to Judas, like literally reaching out to Judas, extending his hand with the bread. It's an example of what Jesus commands us to do in Matthew 5 and verses 43 and 44 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says there, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Look at verse 27. After Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. This is powerful. You know, uh, the bread enters his body, and Satan enters him. The example of Judas here is something that should humble us. Like we should take heed when we think about Judas. The last thing that we should ever think is that this could never happen to us. Frederick Dale Bruner um, says this, Judas should be, for Christians, a more disturbing figure than Pilate or Caiaphas or the Jewish leaders. Judas is the reminder that on any day some faithful follower might turn on the light and stumble out into the darkness, caught up in evil or caught up by evil's prince. So when we think about Judas, we should take heed. We should humble ourselves and guard our own hearts and walk humbly before the Lord, and walk alertly. Be alert. First Peter 5, 8 
It says, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Ephesians 6, 10, and 11 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Look at the latter part of verse 27. So Jesus told him, What you're doing, do quickly. I love what Augustine says about this moment. Judas delivered up Christ. Christ delivered himself up. The former transacted the business of his own selling of his master. The latter, the business of our redemption. Praise God. Verse 30. After receiving the piece of bread, he immediately left, and it was night. And again, John's writing here is so powerful because, yes, it was night outside. It was like dark and literally night, but he's saying more than that. He's, 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 he's pointing here to the spiritual darkness when he says it was night, he's, he's referring to the, the, the spiritual darkness of that moment. But that darkness would not last. Another great scholar of the Gospel of John, Raymond Brown, says this, the, the long, dark night that now descended upon the earth would have its dawn when early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. That was Easter morning. That was the dawn of dawns, right? Sunday was coming. Dar the darkness was not going to last. Night was not going to last. It's not going to last for us. John hinted at this at the very beginning of his gospel in John, John 1, 5, when he said the light, that light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. No, we are children of the risen king, as we sung earlier. Look at verses 31 and 32. When he had left, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. So when Judas leaves the room, everything's put into motion. The events that are going to transpire are all put into motion here at this moment. The, the, the arrest of Jesus in, in Gethsemane uh, late, later on. And all the events of the leading to the crucifixion, the crucifixion itself the next day. Everything is like put into motion at this point. And Jesus has been talking about, throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has been talking about being, being, being lifted up on the cross. And, and the association of that in John is with glory. Now here's the irony. On the outside the last thing that people thought about when they thought about crucifixion was glory. Crucifixion was the ultimate humiliation. But see, G Jesus, when he speaks about the events of the passion, he speaks about it as his, as his glory. When, it, when he's lifted up on the cross, 
that is the prelude to the fact that he is going to be lifted up in resurrection, lifted up in ascension, and ultimately will re return in glory. So it's all bound up in the glory of God, what's, what's happening. There's a fourth principle here that we see, and that is that you were called to Christ-like love. You were called to Christ-like love. Verse 34, Jesus says, I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. I love what New Testament scholar D.A. Carson says about this. The, the new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate, profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice, right? The trouble's not understanding what Jesus says. <laughs> the problem is putting it into practice, right? Hey, why is it called new? Why, why, does, why does Jesus say, I'm giving you like a new command? Love one another was not new. The, the new part is that he's saying, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. Just as I have loved you. You're to love one another. See, Jesus is raising the bar. You are to love one another as I have loved you. How can we do that? Only through the Spirit. Only through the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 35. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Francis Schaeffer once said that love is the mark of the Christian. This is what should distinguish the people of God. This is what people on the outside should be struck by. Our love for one another. The church father, Tertullian, writing about a century, just like a century after John wrote, who had, had, had seen Christians martyr and seen the reaction of, of unbelievers, of, of, of pagans, to, to, uh, to the martyrdom of believers. Uh, one of the things that, that unbelievers would say in those days that, that, that marked Christians, that distinguished them, they would say, see how they love one another. How they are ready to die for one another. That's what Christians were known for. Like, we should be known for that. Listen, do you, do you love the body of Christ? That should be the, that's the mark of the Christian. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Do you love the body of Christ? Do you cherish the, the body of Christ, the church, right? Do you love being with God's people, right? Do you love serving with God's people, do you love God's people even when sometimes they're hard to love and all of us sometimes are hard to love? Do you love, do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ in spite of like their idiosyncrasies and, you know, and their warts and all the different things and all the, all the, all the stuff that all of us have? Do you, do you love your brothers and sisters? Like we're the family of God. Do you, do you forgive your brothers and sisters when they need forgiveness? Like Christ has forgiven you? That's, that's Christ-like love. 
That's what we're called to. Verses 36 and following. Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Now, do you see the irony here in this? Don't miss this. Peter's saying, I will lay down my life for you. But Jesus knew that before the rooster crowed, Peter was going to deny him three times, deny that he even knew him, deny him, disown him three times. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? <laughs> Jesus knows what's going to happen. But here's, here's the beauty of this. Here's the irony of this and the beauty of it. You've got Peter saying boldly, I'll lay down my life for you. When in reality, he was going to deny Christ. Jesus saying, will you lay down your life for me? No, it's not going to go that way. But you know what, Peter? You're going to be forgiven and you're going to be restored because I'm going to lay down my life for you. I'm, I'm going to lay down my life for you. And that's why you're going to be forgiven and restored because of what I'm going to do for you. And listen, he's done it for you. He's done it for me. Because we've all been Peter, right? We've all denied him. We've all rebelled against him, right? We have all transgressed and sinned. In so many ways, we all need forgiveness, right? And we can get it because he laid down his life for us, for you. Listen, do you, do you know that? Is that a reality in your life? Do you know Christ personally? Have you experienced the new life and the forgiveness and the cleansing that he brings? Jesus invites you to himself. He invites you to come to him, to know that. And as a believer, listen, he invites you to lean back upon him. Look at the intimacy in this text, right? You've got John like literally leaning back against him, but that's your privilege as a disciple. Because of Christ's love, you can lean against him. Father, we thank you for this text. Thank you for just all the rich treasures that, that we see here in the upper room. And we thank you that you have called us to yourself to be your disciples. We thank you that you've sent us out on mission, not, not alone, but in the power of your spirit and by your authority. And Lord, as we're, as we're sent out, Lord, may we, may we be reminded of, of, these, of these things. Lord, may we be reminded of the fact that rejection's not personal. 
May we be reminded of the fact that we need close brothers and sisters to come alongside. Lord, make us, make us humble and alert when we think about just the nature of spiritual warfare and satanic attack. And Lord, may we demonstrate Christ-like love to our brothers and sisters so that the, the outside world will know that this is real. Something's happened to these people. Something supernatural has happened. These people are different. These people truly love one another. And Lord, seeing that love, may they come to experience your love. May they be attracted to you and to your love. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. We're going to...